Good morning, Glasgow Elam. How are we doing? We doing okay? If you're a visitor here this morning, it is great, great to see you. It's great to be in the house of God um, and gathering together. Wasn't it great last Sunday to gather on Easter Sunday and just celebrate Jesus? Now, there are some questions we ask that there's just default answers for, right? And that really should be one of them. Wasn't it great to gather together on Easter Sunday? It's better. We came together and we celebrated with all that we had, didn't we? We celebrated that Jesus is alive. That death has been vanquished. That the power of death is no more. We celebrated that with all that we have. And we celebrate that on Easter Sunday. But of course, we celebrate it every Sunday. We celebrate it every single day of our lives. We are alive because he is alive. And that is central to our Christian faith, that Jesus died so that we could be forgiven of our mistakes and errors, and he rose again from the dead so that we could have life, a life in relationship with him, but life evermore, life eternal. And that is a tremendous reason for celebration. Death has been vanquished. The sting of death is no more. The curse of death is finished, and there is life for every single one of us that have faith and trust in Jesus. And as we arrive at the word of God today, we're coming back to the Easter story, but we bring a bit of balance to that incredible celebration. Because this morning, I believe that God wants to minister on a topic that we don't particularly, we're not very good at talking about in church and as Christians, and we're not the best at journeying through. And that's the subject of grief. Yes, we have this hope, don't we? When our days on this life are over, we will instantly be in the presence of Jesus. And when we lose someone that we love who have faith and trust in Jesus, we know that they are instantly in his presence. But the truth of the matter is that even although we have that hope and that truth, even though we know that the sting of death has been emptied and the curse of death is over, and we know that, yes, people are in a better place when they leave this scene of time and they pass into the next, it doesn't mean that we don't have to experience and journey through grief. We all experience grief. And grief is a bit of a heavy subject. I know as I say that, everyone's like, oh, good grief, here we go. This is going to be a heavy subject. And we promise that as we journey through this this morning, we're trying to not address it in a way that is heavy, and we're going to end on a way in which we're in a place of real comfort and ministry and celebration. But it's important that we talk about grief. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to John chapter 20? We're going to look at this story through the lens of grief. Verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now, John is not. John alone doesn't cover this moment. The other gospel writers all cover the moment of Mary arriving at the tomb. Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually tell us that Mary was not alone at the tomb. That with her was Mary, the mother of Salome, and of James, and of uh, the younger. Luke's gospel just says some women went to the tomb to anoint his body with spices 
and perfume. The point is, she was not alone on this journey. And it would appear that when these women arrive at the tomb, they find the stone rolled away and they find the tomb empty and they're somewhat confused by the situation. And one possible version of events is that it's at this moment, as they look into the tomb and see that it's empty, it's at this moment that Mary Magdalene left the tomb and ran to tell the disciples. And this meant that the other women were there when they heard the message of the angels. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. But Mary missed that news while she's hot-tailing it to the disciples with the information that the tomb is empty. She missed the news that Jesus had risen. And that's seen in the fact that her message to the disciples, the information she passes on is this. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Now upon hearing this news, Peter and John leg it to the tomb. Let's look at verse three. It says, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Peter and John make their way to the tomb. John's the other disciple, the other more athletic disciple. More athletic, but yet more humble. He wants to point out that he outran Peter. But he's, he's the other disciple. Peter and Usain Bolt make their way to the tomb. And when they arrive and see the empty tomb, they see the grave clothes, but they fail to compute and understand what's going on. Now John records himself as believing, but then he puts in brackets that they didn't understand that Jesus had risen from the dead yet. So how could he believe but yet not understand what has happened? I think the point that he's making here is that he believed the message of Mary. They've taken his body from the tomb and they don't know where they put him. In their confusion, they then return back to where they are staying. And by the time that they've left, poor Mary's on her way back and missed them again. She arrives at the tomb. She's missed the message of the angels. She's missed the investigation of the disciples. She is alone and she doesn't have a clue what is going on. And we join the story at the point of the text that we're focusing on this morning in verse 11, where it says, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. The verses that we're about to steer into are, I think, some of the most beautiful and stunning verses. They present a stunning moment in Scripture. Mary stands alone outside the tomb. Now, why is Mary there? What's brought her to that point? Let's do the backstory on Mary for a little bit to understand a wee bit more about why she is there invested as she is. When Mark tells us a little bit about this event of Mary visiting the tomb, he gives us a bit more information. He says in Mark 16 and verse 9, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Mary's story is a story of a transformed life. 
She's had a powerful and profound encounter with Jesus and has experienced freedom as a result. And her experience has convinced her of the identity of Christ and has brought about belief in his message. She gave her whole life to the man who gave her her whole life back and completely transformed who she was. Now Mark tells us a little bit about some of the women around Jesus and it says this in Mark 15 and verse 40. That the women at the foot of the cross describes them and it says, among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and of Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So according to this passage, Mary Magdalene was one that followed Jesus on his ministry journey, but not only was she one that followed him, but she's also one that tended to his needs. She actually cared for him. She practically supported him in his ministry. Now this is echoed in Luke's gospel. It says in Luke 8, after this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him. And also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So not only did Mary care for Jesus and practically assist him in his ministry, but also she financially and sacrificially gave out of what she had to enable Jesus to minister the way that he was ministering. And this is really important that we recognize this because we often focus on the 12 disciples as being essential in supporting Jesus in his ministry, but actually we need to give recognition to the women who were supporting him and serving him too. They equally traveled alongside him on his ministry journey and they equally enabled him to minister the way that he was ministering. In fact, if we come back to Mark's reference of the women who cared for Jesus, we see that this reference is actually a reference to the crucifixion. Now Mark goes into lots of detail. He tells us all about Jesus being crucified with two criminals on either side of him. He tells us all about the crowd mocking him and shouting, if you are the Messiah, then save yourselves. He talks about thick darkness covering the land as Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He talks about the wine and the vinegar-soaked sponge being offered to Jesus to drink. He tells us about Jesus breathing his last breath and dying. And then he says, Some women were watching this from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was with Jesus throughout his ministry. She was with him throughout his journeys. She was with him in his suffering and she was with him in his death. She watched from the foot of the cross as her saviour the one that had transformed her life and for whom she cared for out of love and devotion. She watched as he was tortured, as he was crucified, and he died. She journeyed through the final stages of life with him. She might not have taken the stripes on the back or the nails in her hands, but she took every single step with the one that did. Every step he took in his suffering, she took it with him. Every step in his final journey was made with Mary as his companion. She walked that walk with him. She journeyed through that valley alongside him. In fact, Mark tells us 
that Joseph bought some linen, brought some linen cloth, or bought some linen cloth rather, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. She watched him on the cross. She watched him being taken down. She watched him being wrapped. She watched him being carried. More than watching, she followed him. She followed him to the tomb. She saw where he was laid. In fact, Matthew adds more detail and says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Mary was the last at the foot of the cross and she was the first at the tomb. She never let Jesus out of her sight. She watched his body being taken from the cross. She accompanied his corpse to the tomb. She watched him being buried. She left the tomb that day only to go and prepare spices and perfumes with which she was going to anoint his body. She'd cared for him in his life. She would care for him in his death. However, when she returned to the tomb with her spices and her perfumes, the tomb's empty and the body's gone. The other women, they come and go. The disciples look and leave. But Mary stands alone outside the empty tomb with an empty soul. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Mary breaks. Her soul shatters. The tears flow. Grief visits Mary. And looking at Mary in this moment, we get a little bit of a picture of grief. A biblical picture. A biblical framework. And as we talk about that, it's important that we recognize that there are loads of reasons as to why someone can experience grief. Grief is the emotional response that is attached to an experience of loss. But it's not just attached to the experience of loss of a person. It's attached to the experience of loss. We experience grief when we lose that which we love. Someone or something that we love. We can experience grief when we lose a job. When we lose a friendship. When we lose a relationship. When we lose purpose. When we lose opportunity. When we lose that sense of our identity, when we lose health and get diagnosis and all these kind of things, grief can visit us. Grief is not just about losing people. Grief is the experience that is attached to the experience of loss. And we see loads of examples in the Bible of people grieving, people grieving over the loss of other people that they've loved, but we also see loads of other reasons as to why people grieve. We're told in scripture that Peter felt grieved when Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? He felt grieved at the question of trust and integrity and devotion as Jesus asked him that not once, not twice, but three times. He felt almost as though that relationship of trust and loss, or trust and integrity had been lost. That the trust that Jesus had in him was lost. He grieved that. We're told he grieved when he heard the cockerel crow. And he realized they denied Jesus. He grieved when he discovered that actually his integrity was lost. The apostle Paul states in his writings that he felt grieved over the lack of repentance in the churches in the New Testament. That loss of integrity and spirituality and, and holiness and, and devotion. 
And of course, we can all see a picture of grief when we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he knew that the end was in sight and he perceived what it was he would have to endure, sweat drops of blood, we're told. He was grieved. And as we begin to look at this picture of Mary, it's important that we understand that there are loads of different ways that we can grieve, but from it we begin to get a picture of what grief looks like, whether it's attached to the experiences of life or whether it's attached to the loss of one that we love. Let me give you some points about grief. And the first is this, grief can be a lonely experience because Mary stands alone at the grave. She's alone. Now grief is an emotion that even though it's shared and common, it is personal and specific to each individual. We each feel <clears throat> and sense loss in different ways. This is seen in the fact that Mark's gospel tells us when Jesus rose early in the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. Mary was not alone in her grief. The sense of loss was one that all the disciples felt. Mark tells us that all the followers of Jesus were all mourning and weeping. They all felt it. But yet Mary stands alone at the empty grave. In fact, we read earlier that Peter and John get to the tomb and they see that the grave is empty and the, the body is gone and the text says they return to where they were staying. The disciples all felt the pain of loss, but they each explored that grief differently. The women initially went to prepare spices. They kept themselves busy, as it were. The disciples headed home and retreated behind locked doors, almost closing the curtains and locking the door and shutting the world out for a while. Mary, she sits at the side of the tomb, then she stands in front of the tomb alone and won't leave. Each of them all feel the same emotion. They all experience grief and their grief is attached to the same experience of loss. It is all attached to the loss of Jesus but yet they journey through that in loads of different ways. See, grief is a common experience but it's an individual journey. That's important. Grief is a common experience but it's an individual journey. There is no right way to journey through it and there is no wrong way to journey through it. And because we all journey through it in individual ways, it at times can feel like a bit of a lonely experience. Nobody knows how we're feeling. No one else can truly understand what we're going through or what's going through our minds or going through the moods that we're experiencing. And that's because the truth be told, we don't even understand it. We don't even get it. Because we all journey through grief in different ways. And this morning I want to say, that's okay. That's okay. We can look at some people who go through some things and they just bounce right back from those things. From They go through an experience of loss and they just seem to bounce back from it. But we kind of feel that the bounce is kind of, or get up and go is get up and go. And that's okay. There are some people that journey through loss and they, in their minds, somehow seem to resolute. They're in their be a better place, and that's fine with me. But for some of us, that's not okay. And that's sore. We all journey through it in different ways, and that is okay. Grief can be a lonely experience, and it's one that we journey through in different ways. 
The second thing I want to say is this. Grief numbs the soul. Look at John 20, verse 11. It says, As Mary wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. Mary, in her grief, looks into the tomb and she sees two angels dressed in white sitting at the grave and she proceeds to have a conversation with them. Why are you crying, they ask. And without batting an eyelid, Mary just proceeds to tell these angels exactly why. Now let's not miss the fact, Mary is chatting to angels here. Two angelic beings are right before her in the empty tomb and Mary does not show any reaction to that whatsoever. These two angels are sitting there dressed in white, that's standard issue angel costume. Right before her. And they ask a question without batting an eyelid, she just chats them like it's two people she's met down at the bus stop. She shows no reaction to this whatsoever. None. This must be one of the only times in Scripture that we see someone experiencing an angel and not experiencing fear. How many times do we read the angel starting off, don't be afraid, fear not? Because as soon as the angels appeared, they're floored with fear. The angels arrive in Mary's situation, they're like, at last, we can deliver a message and just get straight to the punchline. We don't need to hand out tissues and say, come on now, gather yourself together. I've got a message to tell you. Don't be frightened. Don't be afraid. Mary shows no reaction to this whatsoever. And that's because grief at times can numb our souls. We feel neither up nor down by what's going on around about us because all our soul can comprehend in that moment is the sense of loss. Mary doesn't see the angel. She doesn't get what's going on around about her. All her soul can process is they've taken his body and I don't know where it is. That's all her soul can focus on. This is encouraging to understand that grief can numb the soul because there's times that we go through loss, either the loss of an individual or the loss of a, a friendship or a job or a circumstance or a situation. We experience loss and our souls can feel numb and it's almost as though we're thinking, have I sinned and I'm not sensing God the way that I did before? On top of my loss, am I a spiritual failure? Has God lifted his hand from me? Is he no longer operating in my life? No, it's not that at all. It's just that grief and the experience of grief can numb the soul a little bit. And at times, all our soul can process is the loss that's right in front of us. It's all it's got the capacity to do. And that's okay. That's okay. Grief can numb the soul. And the bigger encouragement is in those moments where we don't necessarily feel God, it doesn't mean that he's not there. It's just that the soul is a little bit numb. Third thing is this. It takes time to come to terms with loss. As we read the conversation between Mary and the angels, we home in on Mary's response. She says, they've taken my Lord away I've lost my place, there it is. They've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. Now notice that she says they've taken my Lord away. Mary has journeyed through a lot. She has watched Jesus die. 
She's journeyed with him through the final stages of his life, her presence in those moments, communicating support of Jesus in those moments. She has watched his lifeless body being taken from the cross. She's followed him and accompanied him to his burial place. She has watched him as he has been buried and put into the resting place. In essence, she has attended his funeral. And yet, it's this moment that we read of Mary breaking. She's watched him go through such trauma. She's been there with him as he's breathed his last breath and died. She's watched him being wrapped up, placed inside this tomb, the stone being rolled over, him being hidden from sight. She's trotted off to go and get her perfume and her spices and she's come back and it's only at the sight of the empty tomb that she breaks. This is the moment where we read of her breaking. Gospel writers record so much detail in relation to what's going on, the crowd cheering and jeering, the insults, the wonder of those around about him, even specific details about the burial of Jesus, the way, the place, the conversations that surrounded it. In the process, we're told about these women watching from a distance, following Joseph of Arimathea. We're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea, who we've never heard of before. He's given his full Sunday title, such as the detail that is supplied there. We're told about the women sitting opposite the tomb. It would not have been out of place at any point for the gospel to record the emotion of these women. We're told about their care and attention throughout his earthly life and ministry. Why not also record the emotion of these women in this moment? I'm sure they would have been emotional all of these moments, but this moment alone records the emotion of Mary because I think this is the moment when realization hits and grief begins. They've taken my Lord away. He's gone. His body's not here. The realization hits. Jesus is gone. You know, oftentimes shock and confusion, bewilderment and adrenaline can carry us through the initial moments of loss until we hit the moment of realization and that's when grief begins. Sometimes when we experience the loss of someone that we love, we carry on through and then there comes a moment where it just hits us and grief begins. Sometimes we can go through a, a, a situation where we lose a job or we lose a friendship or, 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 or we get diagnosis or something like that and we carry on through as though actually we're handling this okay and then there comes that moment, doesn't there, where it's like we've hit a brick wall, slid down it and face planted the floor because realization hits and grief begins. Grief takes time and that's okay that's okay. We need to give ourselves time and space to process loss at the time and the pace and the journey that our soul needs. And it's different for every single one of us. And that's okay. Grief takes time. Fourth and final point is this. Grief flows out of a heart of love. You can hear the care and affection of Mary as she says, they've taken my Lord. She doesn't say, they've taken the Lord. She doesn't even say, they've taken Jesus. She says, they've taken my Lord. She expresses her love for him. He's hers. She loves him. And as he dies, it's as though a part of her dies too, because he's hers. 
But in this moment, she doesn't call him by name. Instead, she calls him by what he meant to her. He was her Lord. And as we journey through loss, we have to come to terms that as we lose someone we love, someone that has shaped us and defined us and shaped our identity, that it can have an impact and a significant impact upon our souls. And at times it can feel as though we lose part of who we are. And that's okay. There's times in which the same can be said when we we lose a job. A job that we've invested everything that we've got into and it's shaped who we are and it's shaped who we do and suddenly that's gone and we begin to experience grief because it's as though a part of us has gone with it. Or we lose a friendship or a relationship or a, or a marriage and we, we pour everything that we've got into that and it shaped us and it shaped who we are and it shaped what we do and it shapes who we do it with but then suddenly all of that is gone and it's as though a part of us has gone too. We grieve because we loved. And we should never shy away from expressing the value of that which we've lost. We grieve because we've loved. To deny ourselves the chance to grieve is to deny the love that we possessed and the value that that which is lost held within our lives. Grief flows out of love and we must allow that to find its vent and its outlet knowing all the way that we each grieve differently. We've got to journey through loss knowing that we will express that in different ways. Mary comes to this tomb, this empty tomb, alone and breaks. And at the point that she expresses her grief, why are you crying, the angels asked her. They've taken the Lord away and I don't know where they put him. At the moment of expressing grief, Jesus turns up. How amazing is that? Jesus turns up. Let's pick it up in verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Mary finds herself in the presence of Jesus and she doesn't know it. This is encouraging. We said this last Sunday. There are many times when we find ourselves in the presence of Christ and we are not aware. This is encouraging because grief numbs the soul and there's moments in which when we've hit rock bottom, there's moments in which when we're going through the storm, there's moments in which we were journeying through the valley of the shadow of death that we call out to God and it feels like the heavens are brass and it feels like God is absent but he's not, he is never absent. He will never leave us nor forsake us. There are times that we are in his presence and we are not aware because grief numbs the soul. And in this moment, Mary has chatted to angels and we've got to call out the significance of this. The presence of the angelic in the life of Jesus is to call out significance and to herald his presence. The angel visits Mary and says, you're going to have a child. The angel announces, there is something significant about to take place, he says. Jesus is coming. He visits Joseph in the dream. Something significant is about to come, the angel says. Jesus is coming. The hills are lit up and the fields over Bethlehem with glory to announce to the shepherds something significant has taken place. Jesus is here. The angels are seated in this tomb to mark something significant has taken place. He's risen. He's alive. But more than that, 
the angels also continue to say something significant is about to take place. That's what their presence signifies. And enter stage left, Jesus. Mary expresses her grief and Jesus turns up in that moment because the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. God comes close to the brokenhearted. His presence draws near to those who journey with grief in their souls. Notice as soon as she expresses grief, the text announces that Jesus is standing right there because he has come close to this brokenhearted woman who is nursing a crushed spirit. In fact, it's almost when you read it as though Jesus has always been there the whole time, like he just stepped from the shadows forward into the spotlight to reveal that actually he's there. When we grieve and we struggle, we can be confident of this. God is near. We might not always see him. We may not always perceive his nearness at first. We might not hear his voice. We might not feel his presence, but he is there. We need to learn to look for him in moments of pain and grief because he comes close to minister. Jesus in this moment is fulfilling scripture. In fact, Jesus is fulfilling his own teaching because it was Jesus that taught, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And he turns up in a moment of comfort, a moment of mourning and grief to provide comfort. This tells us a couple of things. When we're struggling and when we're going through grief, Jesus turns up in those moments. He's present in those moments and he's present in those moments to fulfill scripture. He's present in those moments to bring our lives into an experience of the promises of God. Even though the circumstances change, the promises of God never do. His word remains certain. So he ministers in those moments to bring our lives into accordance, to keep our lives within the promises of God, within the boundaries of his word for us. But he comes specifically with the purpose of comforting. Jesus turned up in this moment specifically to comfort Mary. And I'm blown away when we realize, isn't it amazing that the first appearance of the risen Jesus isn't in a Mount of Transfiguration type moment with clouds of glory and blinding light and booming voices. Isn't it amazing that the first ever appearance of the resurrected Christ isn't in a fanfare moment with an announcement of his power and his identity and his glory. There are no chariots of fire. There is no angelic choir. There's no sound of mighty rushing waters or lampstands or brass and cherubim and seraphim. The first appearance of the risen Jesus, the first revelation of his presence from the dead and therefore the first revelation of the power of his indestructible life, his sovereignty, his victory is I'm comforting a grieving soul. That's so powerful. The first ever appearance, the first ever evidence of the indestructible life, that he has all power and all authority in heaven and on earth, that he's alive and he will never die again, the first evidence of his victory and his power is I'm coming and comforting a grieving woman. He doesn't turn up and say, right Mary, right Mary doll, 
got all the disciples together. I'm going to do this really cool breathing on you thing and I'm releasing the spirit. I'm going to do power and purpose and all that. He didn't say, right, Mary, come on. Buck up the ideas here. Why are you looking so lowly? We've got a world to transform with the gospel. Come on, love. No, he didn't do any of that. The first ministry of the risen Savior is the grieving woman. Here's how this is so powerful. Jesus pays the price. He empties death of its power and its sting. He rises from the dead and defeats the grave. And as he rises from the dead, the first thing he does is he deals with the effects of death. He comforts a grieving woman. That's powerful. The first thing that he does is to deal with the consequences of death. And I think what this shows us as well is that God takes very seriously the experience of grief that we all have to go through as part of being human. He cares. He cares about the toll that it takes upon our souls. And he desires to minister to us in that. And that's why it has to transform the way that we talk to one another. Oh, they're in a better place now. Oh, don't grieve. It's those that have no hope, come on. Because God actually takes very seriously the experience of grief that we go through so much so that before he's released the spirit on people and breathed purpose and commissioned and, and all that kind of stuff, he turns up and comforts a grieving woman. First item on the agenda of the risen savior is comfort. And look at how he does it. We've got to look at how he does it. Because actually I begin to think that if we want to be like the risen savior, then we need to be people that are serious in comforting others in their grief. Church has to become a place where people can find comfort in their grief. Because to do so is to behave like Jesus. Look at how he does it. He interacts with Mary's grief. Women, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? He knows why she's crying. And he knows who she's looking for. Because he knows everything. He's Jesus. So why does he ask? He asked the question because he wants to interact with what she's carrying. He asked the question because he wants to interact with the contents of her soul. He asks her because he's getting her to express what's going on in her soul so that with it laid out and bare, he can minister to it. You know, there are times in which God has to confront us with what we're carrying before he can minister to it. And set us free from it. And that doesn't matter whether it's in a grief situation or any other situation. This is what God does. You know those moments when you're really struggling and you're going through it and you call out to God. And God answers by holding a mirror up. And you're like that really wasn't what I was aiming for. You know those moments where you're going through some stuff and you tell God all about it. What they've said and what they've done and he holds the mirror up and shows you the contents of your own heart and you're like, actually, I was kind of looking for some smiting action. <laughs> I was kind of hoping that you could release some curses on them, boils in the bum, all that kind of stuff. But no, you're holding up a mirror to show me what's going on in my own soul. Because very often, God has to confront us with what we're carrying 
what's going on inside us before he can actually minister to it and set us free from it. So he comes to Mary and he says, okay, Mary, tell me what's going on in your soul. And she brings it out and she lays it out there and he says, okay, now we're going to minister to that and set you free from it. Sometimes we don't even realize what we're carrying and what we've picked up. Sometimes we don't even realize what's going on. We can't see the wood for the trees, can we? We become so fixated on one part that we can't see the bigger picture of actually the real issue that's going on. So God holds up the mirror and he calls it out. So then, having come face to face with that, we can find his ministry and his freedom in it. And that's what he does. And he does it by calling our name. It's incredible. So much ministry takes place just by him saying, Mary. He calls her name in a way that brings with it an instant realization of who he is. Three profound things happen in just the mention of the name. Firstly, he reveals that he's there. He reveals his presence and his nearness. And the way that he says her name suddenly she realizes she's been in the presence of Christ all along. He's there. Secondly, he reveals his identity. He's not the gardener. He's not a stranger. He's Jesus. And he's risen from the dead. And he's standing right in front of her. And if he's risen from the dead, then actually that means in Mary's mind he's done exactly what he said he would do. Destroy this temple three days, I'll raise it back up again. As she realizes whose presence she's standing and she realizes everything he's said about this moment has come true. He's done exactly what he said he would do. So actually he's faithful and he's trustworthy. He's one that she can put her faith and her trust in because he does what he says he would do. All of that communicated just by saying her name. And he's familiar with her. He calls her in a way that is familiar, that carries affection, that carries intimacy. He says her name in a way that only he says her name. In a way that in that instant just causes her to know it's Jesus. He brings her to a place of intimacy and he's tender with her tender soul. The response of the Godhead to grief is to intimately, tenderly, gently reveal his nearness. To intimately, tenderly, gently reveal his identity. Who he is. What he's doing. What he's done. To gently and tenderly bring the soul to a place of wholeness and restoration. Because he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. If you're in grief right now. Not necessarily through the loss of a person, but through the loss of health or the loss of work or the loss of ministry or the loss of a friendship or the loss of relationship or the loss of identity or the loss of purpose. Understand this. Here's the response of the Godhead. He comes near to reveal his presence. He's right there. He wants you to know he's in the place of pain with you. He's right there. And he reveals his identity, who he is in that moment, what he's doing in that moment, the ministry that he's bringing in that moment, the way that you can trust him because he's faithful even in that difficulty. And then he brings us to a place of intimacy, draws us closer to him, 
to begin the process of restoring the soul. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. God comes close to comfort. Because blessed are those who are com- are mo- those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And this is one of my favorite statements because there's no conditions attached to that. He doesn't say blessed are those who are good enough because they'll be comforted. Blessed are those who go to church because they'll be comforted. Blessed are those who do good deeds because they'll be comforted. Blessed are those who prophesy because they will definitely be comforted. Blessed are those who spend an hour reading the word every morning and three hours in prayer. Blessed are those who have the ability to fit a scripture reference into every second sentence. Blessed are those who confront strangers and tell them their worm's going to hell if they don't repent because they'll be comforted. No, there are no conditions attached to this promise. It's an unconditional promise from God. If you're going through grief and you're mourning, you will be comforted. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what's going on. This is the promise of the Godhead. He's going to come close and reveal that he's there. He's going to begin to reveal what he's doing and what he's up to and how you can trust him. He's going to begin to come intimately and tenderly into the innermost parts of who you are to restore your innermost being with tenderness because he's close to the brokenhearted. He comes to bring comfort. And the big thing that we really need to learn is that comfort is a process. In our Pentecostal charismaniac world, we like instant, don't we? We name it and we claim it, we bind it and we loose it, we lay hold of it. It's an instantaneous thing. Sometimes it is and goes great that way, but sometimes he takes us on a journey. And a false belief that exists in churches is that Christians should not grieve. That is a barefaced lie. It's heresy and it's not in line with the word of God. Scripture tells us otherwise. In Ecclesiastes we're told there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. We're told there are activities, there are seasons for every activity. God organizes specific seasons and specific activities and one of the seasons he organizes is mourning and grief. God uses it. He says there's purpose in it, there's merit in it. Paul writes in Thessalonians and talks about how believers should not grieve as those that have no hope. But what we've got to understand is we've got to read that scripture as it says. He doesn't say, we do not grieve, full stop, end of sentence. He doesn't say Christians are not allowed to grieve. But rather he says, Christians do not grieve as those that have no hope. The believer, like every single human being, has to journey through the process of grief, but we do so with hope. And the first hope Paul presents in that exact moment in Thessalonians, this hope first and foremost, is that those that die with faith and trust in Jesus have the assurance of heaven and an eternity in the presence of God. But the second hope is this, the comfort of God. We do not grieve as those that have no hope. The hope that we have is that even though we grieve, God is a God that comforts. He comes close to us and near to us. He journeys us to a place of restoration and a place of wholeness. But it's important that we understand it's a journey. Samus says in Psalm 30, weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. The psalm doesn't say you can only weep at night time. It's not the point. You're only allowed to have a bubble at night. 
But what it's saying is there's a time and a season when weeping will be part of the journey. We will all experience grief in different ways and different means through the loss of people or the loss of things. We will all experience grief and that grief will endure for a period of time. But as sure as the morning will always follow night, is as sure as rejoicing will always follow morning. As sure as the daylight will always break after nighttime finishes, so as sure will grief finish and joy will come. God journeys us to a place of restoration. Now it's not that we won't miss those that we've lost. And it's not that we won't miss the things that we've lost. It just means that we come to a place where the pain is not as intense because God gently and tenderly ministers to our beings. We all have to journey through grief, but it's a journey and not a destination. If you're journeying through grief right now, hear this. It's your journey, but it's not your forever destination. The psalmist concludes his psalm with this. You've turned my wailing, my mourning into dancing. You've removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. The psalmist clearly in this Psalm 30 has been in a place where weeping has come for a season. But then he says this of God. His experience of God is that God has journeyed him to a place of joy that God has brought color back into his life again. And he says this, you've turned my mourning into dancing. The Hebrew word that's used for turn means to retire. So actually the literal translation of the psalmist's experience is this. He says, God has put my grief into retirement. That's pretty amazing. What does it mean to retire? Something I long for. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. To retire in, in, a, in a sense of people is when someone stops working in a particular job and fulfilling a particular role and purpose and they no longer work and they no longer fulfill that specific purpose. Bring that into grief. God says, you know what? There are times and seasons in which grief is at work in your life. And it's not wrong. We'll all journey through it in different ways and there's times it'll numb the soul and it'll take time. But there comes a moment where God says, I'm going to put that grief into retirement that it will no longer work in your life. It'll no longer be at work in your life. It'll no longer carry the same influence. It'll no longer fulfill the same purpose in your life. But instead, I'm going to bring you to a place of dancing. Dancing is an outward expression of joy. Samus says that he's dancing because he's been clothed with joy. In the Hebrew, it means bound with joy. So it's not like just putting on your best frock and going out dancing. It's that God actually begins to change the very culture of the soul. And he binds it to joy, his joy. And in fact, the most exciting phrase in all of it is in verse 12, where the psalmist says, You've turned my wailing into dancing. You've moved my sackcloth. You've bound my soul with joy that my heart may sing your praises. The word sing your praises here in the Hebrew 
It means to touch the strings or parts of a musical instrument, to play upon it, to make music with it, to celebrate. God's desire is to journey our grief towards a place of retirement and replace it with such deep-rooted joy that it causes the heart to make music. Put our grief to retirement and he begins to strum the chords of our soul. <laughs> Which means that slowly and gently and surely he's beginning to change the very culture of the soul. He's beginning to move within our soul. He's beginning to adjust the movement of our soul that then begins to outwork itself in our daily lives because our mourning has been turned into dancing. God brings us to a place of soul restoration. But it's not that we don't carry that wound and scar. It's not that we don't miss the person or the thing that we've lost. But that instead, that sense of loss and the journey through grief and the power of God at work in that has given us a whole new song. A whole new expression of worship to him. That actually, weeping may have been for a night, but rejoicing has come. And that which caused pain has now become our song. It's now become that which we worship him with. This morning, we need to build a picture of grief. And the journey that we need to make through that. Grief is not wrong. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to journey through that at different ways and different paces. It takes time to do that. It numbs the soul but Jesus comes close. He comes close to minister. He comes close to reveal he's there. He's always been there. He comes close to show who he is and what he's doing. Right now, if you're in that grief situation, you can trust him. He is faithful. And he comes to bring you to a place of intimacy where in that intimate place he begins to strum the chords of your soul as he moves grief into retirement and begins to release joy in the very culture of who you are. Weeping may remain for a night but rejoicing comes with the morning and he will turn your morning into dancing. He will clothe you with joy and make your heart sing again. Sing a song that only you can sing of what he's done. Don't give up. He's there. Don't grieve as those that have no hope. Grieve with hope and the comfort of God because he's the God of all comfort. Let's pray, shall we?